As you can tell, when it gets down to the last week of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a whole lot of information. We're just doing the prelude, the preamble, to get to the Olivet Discourse, which is the most extended prophetic discourse that Jesus gives while walking around on this earth. But no portion of Scripture is given in a vacuum. Even the first verse of Scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is preceded by another verse found in the New Testament in John 1, 1, which is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's a contextual flow that goes with every portion of Scripture, from things before, from things after, things right around the uh, immediate context of it. And we're looking at the immediate context. I looked at this class when we started eight or nine weeks ago, and we started in Luke 20. <clears throat> and then we've been in several different locations since then. And now we're, guess where? Luke 21. But before we get even to the Olivet Discourse, we're going to be in John 12 for a little bit. And <clears throat> why? Because all of these things are going on as lead-ups to the time of the cross. The Lord is getting his chicks together, if you will. He is going to teach four of them the Olivet Discourse about prophecy. They're not going to remember it probably right then. But in the upper room, a few days after he delivered the Olivet Discourse to the four, he told the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be able to remember everything that happened for the last three and a half years. Now that's helpful for me because we have to rely on the Lord to remember his word when we need it. The, it's just massive to try and remember all of it is uh, at one time is a daunting task. 31,189 verses, depending on which translation you read, 1,189 chapters. If you learn one point of truth out of each chapter of the Word of God, that's 1,189 points of truth. And we start thinking, well, how much is that that we want to learn? Well, there's a lot of it. So you approach the Scripture asking for understanding, asking for retention, and asking for wisdom how to use it. That's how we're supposed to do everything. We want to understand it in light of its context. So what is the Lord talking about as we lead up to the context of this great prophetic discourse? That's what we're looking at now. It's important to know. We can go directly into uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13 and bypass what leads up to it and we're going to miss something out of it it's just guaranteed so we're trying to take a look at the things that precede the giving of the uh, prophecy on uh, the Mount of Olives to do that requires the Holy Spirit at work we need to go in front of the throne of grace we need to ask for those things it says that when we lack wisdom ask he'll give it to us generously and without reproach so if you want to understand his word he'll give you understanding it may not be immediate it may take a little bit of time seek me with all your heart well there's a test of all your heart along the way seek me with all your heart and then you're going to find me that's a promise. So we keep seeking. He keeps letting us know and illuminating us as to what the Scripture has to say. So let's take this time for prayer as we prepare ourselves to study this portion of His Word beginning in Luke 21. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. Thank you for the prophetic word. It's a light shining in a dark place. Father, you gave it to us so that we might have hope in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation. When our generation seems to be heading all in the wrong direction, which it is, Father, we know that there is indeed hope. It's built on faith, faith in the now, because hope is about the future. And hope is not just wishful thinking according to your word it's a confident expectation of what is going to happen and father with that we're able to love you and love others no matter what culture society time frame or anything we find ourselves in we are able to by the power of the holy spirit to carry out your will which is to love you and love everyone else so father i pray this morning we'll get some more of the fuel to do that 
I pray that we will come to better understand your word and that it will become a part of us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're at Luke uh, 21.1, as I, I mentioned. And <clears throat> this is the contextual flow, uh, the Olivet Discourse. This is point B. It's the week of the cross leading up to it. The, the final week takes chapters and chapters of Scripture. When we go to John chapter 12, John chapter 12 is the week of the cross. And uh, between John 12, there's, there's, it goes to 21. There's eight nine more chapters after John chapter 12 and that's the week of the cross and 13 we move to the upper room and 14 to 17 is the upper room discourse see and then 18 we end up with a cross and the dynamics of the cross I mean there's a lot of stuff we end up with um, on the final week that the Lord is on the earth that's why John closed in John 21 said if we were to try and write down everything he did the world would not contain the books it's just too much so <clears throat> In verse 21, now the actual discourse starts in Luke 21, 5. Okay? So we're going to look at the first four verses that lead up to Luke 21, 5. Now, <clears throat> there's going to be another event that happens before they go up the mountain, and that's in John 12. So we're going to capture that too. But Luke has decided, as we're told in the first five verses of Luke chapter 1, he wants to relate this in chronological order as best as possible. So we follow Luke's chronology to try and figure out when things happen. So somewhere right along in this time frame is, is, is what happens just before the Olivet Discourse. Now in verse 21 it says, And he looked up and saw the rich. Now... <clears throat> There are things in here that, that a Greek student finds exciting that will put everybody else to sleep at night. This is a, and he looked up. It's actually an aorist participle. And it is a word of anablepo. Blepo means take a quick glance. Ana means up. So taking a quick glance up. But an aorist participle is antecedent or previous action to the main verb. Now, the main verb is he saw, okay? It's very simple Greek is what it is, but it says, having looked up. Now, as I study Greek, I am awestruck by its accuracy because if you're looking down, the only way you can see what's in front of you is to look up. So it says, having looked up. That was the preceding action to what he saw. Now, that's just telling me how precise the Greek language is. See, it's not, it, there, it's, it's as precise as it gets. Having looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. The word putting is the word balo, which is interesting. B-A-L-L-O it means to throw. Like you threw a baseball. I mean, that's what the word balo means. So basically, putting their gifts into the treasury, it wasn't like that they were walking up and gently placing it in there with honor and respect for the treasury and all this. It's kind of more like they walked up and threw a few coins in the, in the deal to a beggar. It's more like what they did. But this is, the, he saw the rich throwing their gifts into the treasury. Treasury is gasophilakion. And you have to practice that one several times. It's only used five times uh, in the New Testament. <clears throat> and it basically means a public repository. It was out in the open. It was out in the public. And that's the root meaning of what's behind this word. Is a, it is a, rep a repository that's out in the open. So now who, who's doing this? The rich? We know how the Pharisees, they like everybody to know what they're doing. They like the sound of trumpet before they give alms to help the poor. That's Matthew chapter 6. And what, when did Matthew 6 happen? <clears throat> when his ministry began, three and a half years earlier. Now, where is the Lord now? The week of the cross. What has changed between those three years with the rich the Pharisees describes? Not a lot, right? They are still the rambunctious group of people that they were. They're not listening to what he has to say. But notice from this, Jesus was observing how people gave. 
Okay? Now, when we talk about giving, there's a few things that, that preachers usually don't like to talk about. Some of them love to talk about giving. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of people that stay closer to the Bible don't like to talk a lot about, about giving. But it's necessary to talk about from time. There's two or three things that will hurt a church real fast. Giving is one of them. You talk about marriage, that's first session. That will hurt a church real fast. There's a few things. You talk about uh, people's money and their kids. You can run people off really fast, but that's you got to speak the truth. That you got when the Bible deals with it, an honest teacher is going to have to deal with it. And the Lord was looking at how people gave. <clears throat> now apply that to us. He sees what we give. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. <clears throat> he knows what we're going to give before we give it. He knows if he knows what our attitudes are behind this giving. He knows everything about it. And uh, this parallel is Mark 12, 41a. It says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. So it's, it's not just uh, that he was looking at what people were giving. He was looking at how they were giving it. And this group in Luke 21 were just throwing it in. Okay? It was just like it was pocket change, extra stuff that they had. Now, some of the rich, Mark 12:41b, many rich people were putting in large sums. Okay? So some of them came along. I don't know if they had a pocket full of coins or what particular thing they were using. Folding money in bills was not part of the ancient... Uh, ancient world. If you find a, a $1 bill dated 4 BC, you know there's a problem with it. They didn't have that kind of money. <clears throat> so what did it come in? Coins was the primary function. Often pieces of gold. Often pieces a whole lot less than gold. And many rich people were putting, how do you, how do you know what they're, besides him being God, you could hear all the clanging and banging of all the coins going in, especially if they were throwing it into the treasury. So that they would, uh, people would know, well, I'm putting in a whole lot of money into the treasury. But the Lord knows what they're giving. The only time in the Gospels that Jesus spoke from the treasury, now he's not in the treasury, he's across from the treasury, was when he disclosed that he was the light of the world. The only time he walked over to the treasury and started talking that is recorded is found in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Now this is a tremendous uh, passage where Jesus spoke to them saying, I am, I myself am, ego I me, I myself am the light of the world. He follows me will not walk in the darkness, but he will have the light of light. Notice the if and the then. If you follow me, then you will have the light of life. He who follows me will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it. But I and the Father who sent me. And see, <clears throat> Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew he was God in the flesh. He didn't suddenly discover it one day, like some people will have you believe, that Jesus in his humanity finally went, oh, I'm a God. No, he knew it from a time he was able to think and put things together. He knew who he was. Even in your law, it's written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me or my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8. 
Quite a, quite a passage. That's the only other time he spoke from the treasury itself. Remember what he had done a couple times. And earlier in the week, the week of the cross, he went and cleaned the temple out for a second time. The first year after he started his ministry, walked into the temple, he cleaned it out. Of the money changers, they, were, they, they had a racket going on. They were crime bosses. And these were the priests. They had a racket. If you brought a little lamb to the uh, place, then uh, they'd find a flaw in the lamb. If the lamb was flawed, you didn't get to do it. They'd find a flaw. But of course, they had one that was sanctified that you could buy. So they were able to take these flawed lambs and uh, use them for their own ends. And then they had uh, to, because you couldn't trade a bad lamb for a good lamb, could you? You had to buy one that was kosher, that would fit. And they, were, they had a racket going on doing that, not to name all the other stuff that they had going on in the, in the time. So the Lord cleaned them out. You know, he said, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you made it a den of thieves. He was not happy with the way people did money. In another place, Pharisees are called lovers of money. Now, here's Jesus watching people put money in. <clears throat> in verse 2, well, I should have gone here first. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper Sense. Now, Mark twelve forty two uh, says a poor widow came and put in two small copper cents, which amount to a cent. Now, this is just basically saying the translators didn't know what to do with this this word that's in here. It's a quadrante. It's only used twice. Used in Matthew five twenty six. It's the smallest portion of coins and we don't really have a frame of reference for it. It's hard to translate it. It's translated for English speaking people know what a cent is. If you're in England they translate it a farthing. I mean it's just it's the smallest coin denomination of coin that is found and she put in two of those. Now that's what she had. Now Jesus had just proclaimed we're going back to the context here in Mark 12:40 that the Pharisees devoured widows' houses. That's what they did. And she's got two cents, and she is a poor widow. Okay, so it lends to ask the question, had the Pharisees just devoured the widow's house, leaving her only two small coins? Had they done that? We don't know. It's one of the questions I'll ask when we get there. But some... Widows are incredible warriors for the Lord. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 36, when you find the mention of widows and orphans, there's a special place the Lord has for them because they're viewed as the helpless of society. And sadly, widows and orphans are often preyed on by the corrupt of society. Uh, how many scams go around every year, new scams go around trying to catch seasoned citizens off guard and steal money. Now they've got the telephone, the internet, and everything else to do it. I get several phone calls a week. I'm, I'm, you know, I've got, a, I've got a friend in Africa. I'm so happy to know that he's concerned about whether or not the warranty on my car is going to expire. And he calls, trying to help me out. Widows and orphans are easily preyed on. Orphans are frequently bought and sold, sadly. And I'm not talking about legitimate adoption. The Lord loves legitimate adoption. But whenever orphans are just bought and sold, like they are in so many places of the world, he's not happy with that one bit for trafficking in human souls. There was a prophetess in Luke 2, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher and she was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84 most of her life had been spent without her husband she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers so some widows are incredible warriors for the Lord they see the Lord as their husband 
They make him first in their life. We all should. Husband and wife should have the Lord first in their life at all times. That's the way it's designed to work. It's the way it was designed with Adam and Eve, and it's the way it should be carried on to every member of the human race. But here is a here is a lady that lost her husband, and she devoted her service to the Lord, and it was noticed. She served in the temple. See, if he knows whenever what we're putting in the offering plate, and he does, then he knows the service that we're rendering to him. And then you get a passage like Hebrews 6.10. It says he's not so unjust as to forget the service that you are rendering to him and to the saints. So you do something to help somebody out. The Lord notices. Here is all this woman had, and she put it in the offering plate. The Lord always had a special compassion for widows, which is part of why they were to be cared for under the law of Moses. The law of Moses, we're not going to go back into the, into the five books of the law, but the Lord had a special place for widows that they were to be cared for and watched after. It was the responsibility first of the family and then of the nation. Stayed that way in the New Testament, by the way, but first responsibility was to the family. But look what he did for a widow in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. And as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. It says, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Now when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. Yeah, I find that some people that are Christians think compassion's a, a nuisance. Actually, compassion is what the Lord displayed more than once. And I'm certainly glad he displayed it toward all of us or there'd been no redemption. But he felt compassion for her and he said to her, Do not weep. And he came and he touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man... I say to you, arise. Will that be the word that we hear at the trumpet that raises the dead? The dead man sat up <laughs> and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. This widow touched Jesus. It was also quite an opportunity what manner of man is this? The wind and sea obey him and he raises the dead. He had a special compassion. The responsibility for the care of widows is given first to their family <clears throat> and then to the church. Now James 1.27 is a, is a passage that actually goes with 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 for that point but James 1.27 says pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world don't take advantage of them is that last phrase keep yourself unstained by the world you go to help to render help. It's part of what should be done. But see, widows also have a responsibility to their family as well. It's interesting the way the Lord always does this with a mutual responsibility to one another because he wants love one another to be a mutual responsibility. Honor one another. Bear one another's burdens. Serve one another. It, it's a two-way street is the way that he has designed this. 1 Timothy 5 1 says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow, or 5 3, has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. The family is to take care of widows first. Now she who is a widow indeed and has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Says a widow can go different directions on this thing after losing a husband. And says make it a godly direction. That's what it's saying. Make it a godly direction. Prescribe these things as well 
so that they may be above reproach. Interesting comment about widows, right? A responsibility. Where do you remember above reproach happening? 1 Timothy 3. For the overseer must be above reproach. Verse 8 of chapter 3. Deacons must be above reproach. Okay? That means no valid charges of wrongdoing. That's what it, what it means. It says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> okay, Paul, just tell us what you think there. Because he just did. <laughs> he just did. Widows have a responsibility to their family. Family has a responsibility to the widows. And then the church has a responsibility so that's the way that God designed those roles to be carried out. Now in verse 3, <clears throat> and he said, the Lord speaking again, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. Those rich people, they put in obviously a whole lot more. They were putting in large sums of money. Mark 12, 43, the parallel passage, calling his disciples to him. He said to them, he wanted the disciples to be sure and get this too. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all, out of their surplus, put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It was a complete trust in the Lord because she was putting it into the treasury of the Lord. Now this parable clearly deals with the issue of percentage. We don't like to talk percentages a lot of times in the, in the uh, church age because we're, no, we're not with Israel. We're no longer under the law. The 10% legally does not apply to us but it's about the only percentage given in, it's 10% and 100% it's about the only two percentages that are given anywhere in scripture and so here's the 10% it, it's interesting if you start looking at the 10% there was, there was more than one 10% of the tithe too that was given every third year was another 10% that was given there's 23% or thereabouts is what was given for the tithe to run the nation of Israel now, while the Pharisees were careful to give their 10%, remember our context? You tithe dill and mint and cumin and neglect the weightier provisions of the law. The context includes the Pharisees who were perfect right on in giving their, their 10%. Of even the herbs, and they thought they were great. And this lady gave it all. Put it all in there. I find it interesting... The lady gave it to the Lord, which is the treasury of the temple. In spite of the fact that the temple was a mess. But Jesus did not benefit personally from this at all. Because he was not on the payroll of the temple. And Jesus honored her. Jesus honored her. The Pharisees gave to be seen by other people. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, <laughs> as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The Lord knows how we, how we give. He knows the attitude with which we give. He is, he, he's got that all logged in. He knows it. Charles Ryrie said you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Pretty good idea. You show up with a, <laughs> you know, old joke about showing up at the pearly gates with, with a sack of gold. Peter says what's in there, and it's all the rich man's gold. He said, ah, it's just paving material. We're not going to worry with it. So he says, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That's a pretty good standard of thought process there. The Pharisees gave to be seen by other people. And the, uh, the Lord was, uh, 
who's Jesus? God in the flesh. So he knows what's going on. Uh, it's interesting thing about Buddhism. Uh, I'm not sure if tooting your own horn came from that. But in a Buddhist temple, there's going to be a gong somewhere right inside that door. And every time I th think of a gong, I think of the gong show, which was full of crazies out there. But when you did something good as a Buddhist, you went to the gong and you banged it to let everybody know you had done a good deed to help someone out. That should tell you a little bit about that religion to begin with. So... I was with somebody in a Buddhist temple been almost 20 years ago and and uh, he's a lot of fun and a lot of you know who he is and we were on a mission trip and and uh, he saw what they were doing found out why they were doing it of course he ran over picked up the gong and banged it three or four times so I said you're going to get us all thrown in a dungeon here if you don't cut that out so anyway uh that was that was interesting okay the Pharisees gave to be seen by others giving is to be based on the Lord's gift to us 2 Corinthians 8 9 <clears throat> what did the Lord give us for you know the grace that's the passage of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich he became poor he was seated at the right hand of the Father all along. What did he do? Became poor. He took on the form of a carpenter's son. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. See what he did? He left it all to come here and take our place on a cross. Giving is to be based on the Lord's gift to us. And giving is to be done willfully and cheerfully. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5 through 12. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are the most extended uh, chapters on the concept of giving found in the New Testament. In chapter 9, verse 5, he's talking about the churches in Macedonia, that there's an offering being taken up for, that other churches have pledged to make an offering for them. And Paul's trying to say, when I get there, I want you to have it ready. I don't want to do offerings while I'm there. I don't want to take the time to do that. He says, you get it ready. You make the decision. You call out two people who are trustworthy and honest to accompany us to take this offering with us to Jerusalem. You said you would do it, now do it. And that's what Paul told the Corinthian church. And then he says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. What's wrong with covetousness? Well, it's the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. That's one of the things. But he's saying whenever you gave, and he gave them time to collect the offering to the help the Jerusalem saints, and he said, so you got time to think about it, time to make a right decision. Now this I say, who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now out of that came a, a thing called prosperity theology. Out of a correct verse like that that's the principle of sowing and reaping if you sow sparingly you'll reap sparingly that's the way it is but then some people have used that and turned it into turned it into a way to build personal empires that's not what it was about each one must do as he's purposed in his heart when it comes to offerings as he's purposed in his heart not grudgingly nor under compulsion. I don't believe pastors should stand up and browbeat people about how much they give. If there's a need, say, there's a need. Be honest about it. I know one pastor got in a whole lot of trouble because his house burned down. And he had a TV show. And he was so sad that his house burned down. And Would you please help him rebuild his house because the insurance wasn't going to cover all of it. Well, the other four houses that he had would have probably put him up just fine. 
and he got caught by NBC or Dateline or one of those crazy shows like that and what did it do for Christianity no good whatsoever the cost was certainly not worth the benefit for God loves a cheerful giver see that's the point God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness, it endures forever. And he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all generosity which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. That's how giving is to be done. That's the church age model for giving. Now, what about the United States? Well, I haven't checked the numbers lately, but I doubt seriously they've gone up. But as of about 10 or 15 years ago, you know what the, what the percentage of giving to all charitable organizations was based on how much money was coming into individuals in this country uh, uh, one nation under God and I'm talking about all of them secular and everything else 2% of what was income was what was going to charitable organizations now I think that is a picture of a lukewarm society at best Laodicean group that loves the gold and silver more than the gold and silver of the word of God They've got the priorities wrong. That's a picture. This widow's greatness was because she truly lived by faith. Because what good were those two cents going to do? Well, they did a lot of good because they taught a lot of lessons to people for the next 2,000 years. Now, the Lord places greater value on a walk of faith. The Lord places greater value on a walk of faith than on a large financial gift. And that's the point. That's the point. She had a walk of faith, and he sees that as a much greater value than a large financial gift, especially when it's given so other people can see. Now, the Olivet Discourse, the marriage puzzle, the commandment, we've seen those. And the, the sixth part of the introduction is the Lord becomes greatly distressed. And we move now to John chapter 12 in verse 20. In John chapter 12 verse 20 it says there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now didn't he just talk about proselytes? They travel about on land and sea seeking to make, and they, they make one twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They are proselyting is what they're doing, but they're proselyting for money. They are not proselyting to come into Israel, and they, they viewed the proselytes, the Gentiles, as scabs in Israel. And a lot of people didn't like them at all because they thought all the discipline that came on Israel caused, came because they included the outsiders into their nation for price to do that. So there were some Greeks. They were up there, proselytes, and these came to Philip. They approached Philip. Then they came to Philip. Uh, Philip's name means a lover of horses. Not quite sure how he got that name, but that was Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The Gentiles are coming and wanting to see Jesus. Now Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now he was still probably in the temple. He was probably close to the treasury. This is where this is going, going on. Now these were obviously some Jewish proselytes. Why else would they want to see Jesus? They'd heard about him. But uh, were they wanting to see Messiah? Were they wanting to evaluate themselves? What were they wanting to do? For Greeks to ask to see Jesus was an unusual request. We know how unusual it was when the centurion 
asked that he would heal his servant. We remember that amazing story. And <clears throat> the usual quest. So Philip sought some counsel before exposing Jesus to potential danger. See, because Jesus had just proclaimed a woe that regarded the proselytes that they were seeking to make and they were not making them for the right reasons. Under the Mosaic law, they welcomed people into the society, but they had to meet the qualifications. Uh, they were going to become a part of the nation of Israel in order to be accepted and reap the benefits of that. For them to see him, he'd have to come outside. So that's basically where the context is. Now, we're not told if they were granted a private audience or not. Another one of the questions we get to ask when we get there. Okay, did they get a private audience or not get a private audience? In verse 23, it says, And Jesus answered them, this is Philip and Andrew, saying, The hour has come for the son of the man, literally, the son of the man, a title of Messiah, uh, goes all the way back to the book of Daniel, to be glorified. The son of the man is basically a phrase inferring that he is the second Adam and the last Adam. The son of the man. Now biblically, an hour looks at a relatively short time frame. Not necessarily a literal 60 minutes. It can, when there are other things about it, like Revelation 18, destroyed in one hour of one day. There are other things that will tell you it's pretty well a 60-minute time frame. But a lot of times, an hour just is a short time frame. It will deliver you from the hour of testing. It's going to come on all the earth, Revelation 3.10, and it's the seven-year tribulation. So it's a relatively short time frame. Now, Jesus' glorification involves his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. From John chapter 7, verse 37, On the last day, the day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is a gospel invitation by Jesus. <laughs> he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Ah, okay. Chapter 7, year two earlier that it, that happened. And the Spirit, no, not then, until Jesus is glorified. John 12, verse 15 and 16 Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So his glorification is important. He says, the hour has come. This is the week of the cross. The timing is, is getting very close. It is now. Now there was a real temptation for Jesus for self-glory. <clears throat> There's an argument that goes on in seminaries. And it depends on which side of the spectrum you're on. Arminian or Calvinist. It depends on which side, which, which side usually people take. Was Jesus able not to sin or was he not able to sin? They put Latin terms on it, posi non peccari, peccari non posi. They put those on, flipped those things around. Was he able not to sin or was he not able to sin? Hmm. Well, if he was not able to sin, was he true humanity? One question that would be legitimately asked. Because Adam was obviously able to sin. Now, is he able not to sin? Yeah. There's three different things there. 
Not able to sin is a whole different deal. And a lot of people of the Calvinist bent believe that Jesus was not able to sin in the flesh. That his deity so overpowered his humanity that he was not able to sin. And then there are those who believe that he was able not to sin and did not. To me, that's the most reasonable explanation of the, of the facts. He was able not to sin. Now, why would I even make that argument? And a part of it is right here in these passages. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself. Now, self-glory is always listed as sin. If I glorify myself is a third-class condition in the Greek. Which says, maybe it'll happen and maybe it won't happen. It's a true if. The first class condition is if, it, if it's true and it is. Second one, if it's not true and it's not. Third one, if it's true and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. This is the third class condition. He's saying, that to me, the possibility is there. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Self-glorification, even by the Lord Jesus Christ, means zero. And we find it in other places as sinful. He says, it's my Father who glorifies me of him, of whom you say, he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. These are bold statements Jesus is making in John chapter 8, just as bold as it gets. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. That's basically the age of retirement for a priest. He said, you're not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, this is good. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Love that passage. I am the I am. That's exactly what he said. <laughs> they knew what he said. <laughs> Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. Self-glory is a sin. He said, that's not what I'm going to do. The glory I get is going to be from the Father. And that's the way it should be. Humanity, deity, melded together, perfectly able not to sin because of his reliance on the Holy Spirit. And we can make that case stronger if we need to. But Jesus' assignment was to glorify the Father, John 11. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. He's talking about Lazarus who had died. He's getting ready to go raise him from the dead. Well, he said the Father's going to use it. To glorify the Father required that Jesus wait for the Father's timing. In John 13, 31, Therefore, when he had gone out, what happens there? The washing of the feet in the upper room the night before the cross. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. He's saying, it's getting ready to happen, guys. He's telling them what way. In fact, he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen from now on so when it comes to pass, you'll know that I am the one. The Father's glorified. When we ask him in the name of the Son, John 14. So I'm talking a lot about glory here in John, aren't they? John 14, 13, whatever you ask, I tell, oh, humbly ask from an inferior to a superior, in my name that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's where he says three times, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the start of that. The Father's glorified when we bear much fruit. John chapter 15. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. How then shall we live? We study all this, we learn all this, we're fascinated by what happened during the week of the cross. So what? That 
my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples just as the father loved me I've also loved you abide in my love and this is done by listening to and living by the spirit John 16 when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth that's a verse I claim all the time it says for he will not speak of his own, on his own initiative but whatever he hears he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come who is the revealer of the truth of God's word it's the Holy Spirit what does he want you to know what's going to happen why so you'll have that hope that fits right there in that second slot faith hope and love these three but the greatest of these is love because you have to have a confidence about the future of eternity to function properly now now if you think you're getting there by your works it's arrogance and it don't count so we have to get there by the grace of God through faith when he the spirit of truth comes it says he will disclose to you what is to come he will glorify the Holy Spirit will glorify who? Jesus he'll glorify me for he'll take a mind and he'll disclose it to you Jesus is the revelation that's who he is he is the revelation how do we understand it by the power of the Holy Spirit what is he going to tell us that you've got the truth in your life that's what he is going to affirm you know what he's also going to talk to us about the fact that he's coming back he's going to what did Jesus say in John 14 I go to prepare a place for you and I am going to come and get you and bring you to myself that where I am there you may also be now to me that's a great hope in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation that Jesus is coming back and he's going to take me with him when he goes back to the father's house that's where our hope is found not on anything we've done but on everything he's done and on his promises that we that's a hill we can die on folks and die with a smile <laughs> let's pray thank you father for your mercy your grace your love for the gospel the good news that is so very very simple it's simple and yet the evil one tries to twist it, distort it, mess it up any way he possibly can. And yet, Father, it's still very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Father, that's a message of good news that we need to take to a world full of bad news. And Father, I pray that you would give us the strength, the courage, the wherewithal to be able to do just that. We pray that you'll continue to nourish our souls with your word so we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we ask it. Amen.